0: Hey there, my name is Ryan Hughley and I'm lead pastor of Ridgeline Church in Salt Lake City, Utah. Thanks for checking out our podcast. Our goal is to help as many people as possible meet and mature in the Jesus of the Bible. For more information about our ministry, visit our website at ridgeline.church. If you enjoy the podcast, consider subscribing on the platform of your choice. Thanks again for listening and I pray God's spirit uses this message to revive you in a fresh way. Good morning, Ridgeline Church. It is so great to be with you. My name is Daniel Adams. I'm a student pastor out in Charlotte, North Carolina. I'm so excited to be bringing God's Word to you this morning. Ridgeline Church is really a church that holds a very special place in my wife, Paige, and I's hearts. We remember the journey of Pastor Ryan and Tammy and Pastor Tyler as they trekked out to Salt Lake City to start Ridgeline Church just a couple of years ago. We've been praying for you guys fervently and have been so encouraged by the work that God is doing in and through your church in the Salt Lake City area. You know, you're Pastoral staff really holds a special place in our heart as well, because Pastor Ryan married my wife and I just a few years ago. Ava was our flower girl, and Lincoln and Ryder were our ring bearers, and it feels like such a long time ago, Um, but we are just so encouraged by all that they're doing. You guys are so blessed to have them as your leaders at Ridgeline, we hope one day very soon to make a trip out there so that we can meet you guys in person and see all that God is doing in and through your lives. And so this morning, I really wanted to open up the Bible to Acts chapter 17, a message that God has put on my heart for you guys this morning. And as I was thinking about that, I was also thinking about how in our world today, we live in such an age of division. People are divided over seemingly everything. It seems like the only thing that people can agree on today is that we can't agree on anything. You think about politics or you think about spirituality, whatever it is, people are divided. There's one division that's lasted for really a long time in our country, and it's the division of cats and dogs. So I know what you're thinking. Um, Dogs are awesome. Cats, not so much. And so many of you watching this right now are probably like, I am such a dog person, man's best friend. I love dogs. Amen. Praise God. I'm so thankful for you. And there may be other people watching this this morning that need to repent of something in your heart. Maybe you're a cat person and you really love cats. I'm sorry for you, but there's still time for you to change your heart and change your mind. And I was reading a a book by a guy named Bob Stjogren, who uh, wrote a book called Cat and Dog Theology. And he really talks about the differences between cats and dogs and how that works its way out into our theology, even as human beings. And so he talks about how cats and dogs are very different, right? I have a pet dog, and so anytime I come home, my dog is so excited to see me, to greet me, to jump up and down, to give me all the kisses and to play and all those things. And I've had cats before, and cats just kind of lay around on the couch. They don't really move. They're not really excited to see you at all. And Bob really writes about in his book the different distinction here, and he says that um, dogs look at the world, and they say, you feed me, you clothe me, you play with me, you shelter me, you must be God. Cats on the other hand say, you feed me, you clothe me, you play with me, you shelter me, I must be God. And I think that if we're honest, we've got a lot of cat-like theology in our own minds, in our own hearts, in our churches today, because we see the blessings of God, the gifts of God, and we draw a dotted line, not back to God, but to ourselves, and we say that all of this must be for me, I must be God. And I know that none of us would probably care to admit that about ourselves, but maybe if we examined our own hearts and our own minds and actions and words and lifestyles and bank accounts, they would show us something, and it's that in many cases, God is not the center of our own world, but we ourselves are. And this is a problem because it proves that at some level, we don't really know who God is, and we aren't really fulfilling our purpose here on earth. And this concept really gives us the big idea for today's message. It's this. It's that we were created to know God and worship Him. We were created to know God and worship Him. This is the purpose of every single human being that has ever existed for all of time. There's a famous quote that says that missions exist because worship doesn't. And what I love about the passage of scripture that we're going to look at this morning is that it shows us not only how we can know God, but how we can live out the mission that he has created us for. And so if you have your Bible, you can go ahead and open that. We're going to be in Acts chapter 17. We're going to look at verses 16 through 34, and we'll read the passage as we go throughout the message this morning. So kind of some context some background into the book of Acts. What's happening here is Paul's wrapping up one of his missionary journeys. He's on his way back to the home base and he's been fleeing some persecution in a past area that he's been. So he left and he's by himself in Athens. He's waiting for Silas and Timothy to come to him. But don't miss this Paul's not in Athens as part of his missionary journey. Paul's simply waiting out for his brothers in Christ to arrive before they depart to another city. He's hanging out in Athens. And he notices some things about the city of Athens that cause him to engage in the culture. He sees that the streets of the city are lined with idols and gods and goddesses more than he can count. He says that there's more there than there are actual people. Paul sees this. He's got a couple of choices. He can think to himself, you know what? I'm not really supposed to be in Athens right now. Maybe I just kind of, you know, wait it out here and then I can leave when my brothers get here. Or he can see the culture, he can see the idolatry that existed in the city of Athens, and he can lean into it and engage in the spiritual brokenness of the city. And through what happens in Athens, we really see three main ways that Christians are called to live on mission wherever they're at. The first one that we see is that Christians run to spiritual brokenness, not away from it. Christians run to spiritual brokenness not away from it. Let's look closely at the first few verses of this section in chapter 17, starting in verse 16. It says, while Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was deeply distressed when he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and with those who worshiped God, as well as in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also debated with him. Some said, what is this ignorant show off trying to say? Others replied, he seems to be a preacher of foreign deities because he was telling the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. They took him and brought him to the Areopagus and said, may we learn about this new teaching you are presenting because what you say sounds strange to us and we want to know what these things mean. Now, all the Athenians and the foreigners residing there spent their time on nothing else but telling or hearing something new. So I love this section for a couple of reasons. Reason number one, Paul sees what's happening in the, in the city. He sees the spiritual brokenness, the spiritual emptiness, the depravity of the city, and notice what he feels. The Bible says that he feels deeply distressed. He feels sorrow in the deepest part of his heart, pain over the spiritual brokenness of the city, of these people that he doesn't even know, and yet he's distressed over it. What do you feel when you see the spiritual emptiness or spiritual brokenness of a neighbor, of a friend, of a coworker? More importantly, what does it lead you to do? Because Paul does what he usually does. You see that he goes into the synagogue first. He reasons with the Jews there. He reasons with the worshipers of God. And he probably references that Jesus Christ is the Messiah. Jesus Christ is the son of God, the one that you were waiting on. He has already come. He lived here, the perfect life, died and was raised from the dead. He probably used the scriptures to point them back to Jesus. But he also says that he went into the marketplace every single day and he engaged whoever happened to be there. And we don't really have an equivalent today to what the marketplace would be like, but picture the center of the public arena at the time. Trades are happening, business transactions, media reporting, vendors of all kinds. This was the center of the city. It's a public space for everything. And Paul engages with the general audience. But Luke also also mentions two specific groups of people, two specific types of philosophers, the Epicureans and the Stoics. Simple way to describe these people. The Epicureans really pursued a life of pleasure, no thought of the afterlife. It's kind of that YOLO mentality, do what I can now. And then the other people, the Stoics, were like pantheists, believing that everything had a divine nature. These are really the two prevailing thought processes of the time, and Paul's engaging with both of them. And today, each and every one of us knows all different types of people of different backgrounds, of different belief systems, whether it's Mormons, whether it's skeptics, whether it's atheists, agnostics, whoever it may be. And how are we engaging those people? Notice this is the area that Paul takes his faith He doesn't simply wait for the people to come up to him and say, hey man, why don't you tell me about Jesus? He goes into where they are. He doesn't wait for them to enter their church. He goes to where they are, to the hub of life, to where all the people are gathered, all the different backgrounds, and he engages in the spiritual brokenness of the time. He doesn't seek to start a argument or a riot, but he seeks to start a conversation. And I wonder how many of us may have limited ourselves to be Sunday-only Christians. Yeah, we talk about Jesus on Sunday morning while we're at church, but when, throughout the week, whenever we're in our homes, in our workplaces, in our neighborhoods, we may never bring up Christ. Or I wonder how many of us have limited ourselves to be Facebook-only Christians. We'll engage with a post in the comments section. We'll start an argument or start a debate, but we never actually do it with the purpose of showing the love of Christ to people. We see from Paul that he runs to the spiritual brokenness and not away from. And this idea really made me think about what happens whenever we are driving past a car accident, because I think that if we're honest, we all probably do the same thing, right? We kind of slow down and we look to the left of us and we see the brokenness. We see the damage to the car, the EMTs treating the people. We see the broken glass, the slowing down of traffic. And then what do we do? We turn back to the road and we keep on driving. My fear is that many of us as Christians do the same thing when we see spiritual brokenness in our world today. We look at it, we see it, we know it exists, but then we're able to turn back and focus on ourselves once Again, we're worried of what people will think of us if we engage in it or if we step out of our comfort zone and talk to someone who's not like us. But Paul sees spiritual brokenness and it wasn't enough for him just to see it. He entered into it. He felt distressed over it. Why? Because the things that broke the very heart of God broke the heart of Paul. Don't miss this. Until you care about what God cares about, you will never live on mission for him. Until the things that God cares about are the very things that you care about, you will never step into spiritual brokenness. You'll be too comfortable to live in your own lifestyle and not worry about what's happening. And until you love God and love people the way that he calls you to do, their spiritual brokenness will never be anything more than a conversation at your dinner table or something that you scroll past on social media. Maybe you're watching this this morning. You're like, I don't really know anyone that's experiencing spiritual brokenness. I look at Salt Lake City and there's not idols lining the streets. There's not all these people that are bowing down to gods. So that means that we don't have the spiritual brokenness. But I guarantee you that your city, your area, just as Athens did, has more gods than it did people. And they may not be statues, but they may be parked in your driveways. They may be hanging up in your closets. They may be sitting in your bank accounts. It may be the personality that you try to portray that you hope people see you as. It may be the sports that rule and dominate your time and your life. It may be your job, your career. It's anything that takes priority over God. And I wonder what Paul would feel if he saw the very things that we devote our mind, energy, effort, and resources towards. And more importantly, how does God feel? Because God sees it all. This is what Paul saw in Athens. It's why he leaned into the spiritual brokenness. And the people are really confused by what he said, which is why they think that he's talking about how he's a worshiper of multiple gods because they don't understand Jesus and the resurrection. And so they're really intrigued by it, right? Just as our culture is always wanting the thing that's new, so did the Athenians. So they invited him into this area called the Areopagus. So as we mentioned, the first thing that we see is that Christians run to spiritual brokenness, not away from it. And then secondly, Christians know who God is and make him known. Let's look at the beginning of verse 22. Paul stood up in the middle of the Areopagus. So this Areopagus picture picture like a giant court-like setting seated at the peak of the mountain. Athens at the time was the center of the philosophical world. And all these people gather together every single day and they debate and they discuss new religion, new ideologies, new philosophies, and they invited Paul in to hear what he has to say. Let's look at what he says. "'People of Athens, I see that you are extremely religious in every respect.' For as I was passing through and observing the objects of your worship, I even found an altar on which was inscribed to an unknown God. Therefore, what you worship in ignorance, this I proclaim to you. So Paul opens his address boldly, clearly proclaiming that these people, the smartest people in all the world, the people who think they have all the answers to all of life's questions. He says, look, you don't even know who God is. Everything that you believe, everything that you debate, it's all wrong. But I'm here to tell you who God is. I'm here to make God known to you. And anytime you read the Bible, don't read it just like a narrative or a history book. It's important to slow down and picture what's happening. Can you imagine this dude named Paul? No one knows who he is. They invite him into this philosophical hub of the world at the time. And he tells them that everything that they've been devoting their energy, time, and resources to is wrong. Can you imagine that for a moment? It would be like me coming on stage during a worship service and saying, hey, Matt Johnson, you've got a great voice. You're pretty good at playing the guitar, but let me show you how it's done. It'd be like me walking into In-N-Out saying, I know that you guys make a pretty good burger, but I can do one better. Let me show you how it's done. It'd be like me telling Donovan Mitchell, hey, you're pretty good at basketball, but I think that I'm better. Let me show you how to really shoot a jump shot. The people would have been immediately grabbed by what Paul was saying and interested in what he was going to say because he told them that they have it all wrong, but that he has the answer. And Paul, being the great missionary that he is, speaks differently to this group of people than he does in any other circumstance on any other missionary journey. I love what he does because he shows them that they're acting ignorantly but he also shows them three primary ways that they can know God. He gives them three key characteristics about who God is. Let's read verses 24 through 27, and we'll see what those are. First, it says in verse 24, the God who made the world and everything in it, he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in shrines made by hands." So the first thing that he shows them is that he is the creator of all. God wasn't created. In fact, he is the one who created everything. Genesis tells us that by the power of his word, all of creation came into being. Everything that you see was created by God. In an instant, he spoke light into existence. He spoke the planets, the stars and the sky, human beings he formed by his hands, breathing into them life. Everything that you see from the smallest molecule under a microscope to the stars in the sky, God created every single part of it by him and for him. The second thing that we see is verse 25. Neither is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives everyone life and breath and all things. So he's the creator of all. Secondly, he's the sustainer of all. Anything that you worship besides the one true God of the universe makes a terrible God. It's something that you have to create. It's something that you have to sustain or build or satisfy. It's weak. And our God not only created everything, but he holds all things together by the power of his might. Listen to me. If you think for a second, Do you have breath in your lungs today or your heart is beating today because you are awesome or because you eat healthier, because you exercise? I'm sorry, but you are wrong. The reason that you are alive and exist today is because God is holding your body and your being together by his power. He's sustaining your very life and is allowing you to exist. God doesn't need us at all, but we need him. And the final characteristic about God that he gives them is found in verses 26 and 27. It says, from one man, he has made every nationality to live over the whole earth and has determined their appointed times and the boundaries of where they live. He did this so that they might seek God and perhaps they might reach out and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. He's creator, he's sustainer, and then finally, he's sovereign over all. Paul points out that nothing happens by chance. Through Adam, through one man, all of creation has come into existence, into being. And not only that, every single human being that has ever existed, will ever exist, exists in the exact place and the exact time period that God ordained for them to exist. I can't even decide what I want for lunch one day, but God has divinely appointed you to live in the neighborhood that you live the city that you live, to be a part of Ridgeline, to be a part of the group that you're in, to be at the job that you're in, to be watching this message this very morning. And the purpose is this, so that you can see that God is near and that you can reach out and know him because he is so close and he is so wanting to have a relationship with you this morning. It means that you're alive for a reason. And that reason is To know God and to make him known. Paul ends this section by engaging culture, and he quotes two different poets of the time in verse 28 and 29. It says, For in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said, for we are also his offspring. Since we are God's offspring, then we shouldn't think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, an image fashioned by human art and imagination. The God of the entire universe. The one who created every single thing, the one who sustains every single thing, the one who is over every single thing is knowable. The Athenians worshiped a bunch of statues that had no life in them, a bunch of gods that were far off and distant and dormant and dead. But our God is none of those things. He is close. He is near. He is powerful. He is loving. He is kind. And you can know him today. You can be called his children Paul knows who God is and he makes him known. If you've ever been around a great salesman, you know that the thing about great salesmen is that they know all of the objections before you even know what they are. They know all the things that you're going to counter with and they are able to sell you the product because they know the product so very well. And I wonder if maybe the reason this morning that you don't share your faith like Paul does is because you don't actually know God like Paul does because in order to share him, you have to actually know him. Or maybe your knowledge of God is something that terminates in your head and it never reaches into your heart and moves you into action. It'd be such a tragedy to know about God, but to not actually know him. But you can know him even today. It's the mission of every single Christian to know God and to make him known because our God not only created everything, but he sustains it all by the power of God. Of his might. So we've seen the Christians run to spiritual brokenness, not away from it. Christians know God and make him known. And finally, Christians call people to respond. Eternity is at stake. Christians call people to respond. Eternity is at stake. Let's look at the last few verses of this section, starting in verse 30. Paul continues Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God now commands all people everywhere to repent because he has set a day when he is going to judge the world in righteousness by the man he has appointed. He has provided proof of of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. And when they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some began to ridicule him, but others said, we'd like to hear from you about this. So Paul left their presence. However, some people joined him and believed, including Dionysius, the Areopagite, a woman named Damaris, and others with them. The end of Paul's address to the Areopagus is one of the most important parts of the passage because he mentions a day that's coming where every single person will be judged and will stand before God. The judge is Jesus. And the people are wondering, how can we trust this account? How can we believe him? What's the proof? Paul says that the proof is Jesus himself that he came to earth, that he lived a perfect life, that he was killed on the cross, dying a brutal death that you and I deserved in our place for our sins, that he was buried. And the proof is that the tomb is now empty, that three days later, Jesus rose from the dead, defeating sin and death forevermore. And he's now seated at the right hand of God the Father, reigning for all eternity. That's the proof. And Paul urges for a response because the question is of the most importance. Because he could tell them that God is knowable. He could even tell them that they should worship him and that they should make him known. But if he doesn't tell them that eternity is at stake and he doesn't challenge them to respond to the truth of the gospel, then he's not being loving to the people. But he tells them not only how to respond, but he tells them that they need to do it now. Now. Right now, we really do live in unprecedented times, and I know I kind of joked around about the idea earlier, but our country is so divided, racially, spiritually, all kinds of different areas. There's a virus going through our country right now, and it's causing chaos. No one really knows what's happening. No one really knows what it's about, and some people are fearful. Some are indifferent. Some are angry about it. And I read a tragic story a few months back about an at-risk couple who ended up drinking a solution that was used to kill parasites and fish. And the reason that they did it was they wanted to prevent themselves from contracting COVID-19. Tragically, the solution that they drank ended up killing the husband and leaving the wife in critical care. We see that people are trying all different kinds of remedies and practices to slow the spread of the virus and escape the possibility of contracting it themselves. In this pandemic, it's concerning, confusing, and scary, but listen, it is nothing compared to the coming judgment of Jesus Christ. And we all feel the need to respond and urge others to respond and to slow the spread of the virus. And I agree 100% with all of those things. But I wonder how many of us are calling other people to respond to the gospel of Jesus Christ, the judgment of Christ, to sharing the good news of him and calling people to respond it. We see what happens all throughout the books, the book of Acts, is that Paul gives the audience an opportunity to respond. And I want to give you that very same opportunity this morning. Because every time you meet with God, every time you open up your Bible, every time you worship, every time you pray, every time you listen to the Bible being taught, you have an opportunity to respond and to do something. And I really think of three main options for every single person watching this today. First, maybe you're realizing that you have some idols in your own heart that you need to remove. They're taking the place of God in your life. Maybe it's your finances. Maybe it's your money. Maybe it's a relationship. Whatever it is, It's prohibiting you from pointing people to Christ. And you say that you're a Christian, you believe in Jesus Christ, but if you're honest, oftentimes your heart is more focused on things than it is on God. I would encourage you this morning to identify what those idols are, to pray to God, to remove those idols from your life, delete a number from your phone, delete an app from your phone, change your routine, whatever it is. You need to give it up and refocus your mind and heart on God. Secondly, maybe you're realizing that you feel like you know God, but you never really do anything to make him known. Every single Christian is called to share the truth of the gospel. It's the mission that Jesus gives us. It's not just Pastor Ryan or Pastor Tyler. It's every single one of us. Sharing the gospel is as much of an expectation for being a Christian as breathing is for being a human being. Maybe you aren't sharing the gospel because you don't believe it's urgent. Maybe it's laziness. Maybe it's fear. All situations come back to the fact that at some level, we love ourselves more than we love God. So think of one person this morning right now that you can commit to sharing the gospel with, one person that you can commit to praying for, one person that you can commit to inviting to church. I know that you guys are opening back up very soon. Think of someone that you can invite back to church so that they can hear the gospel and that they can know God. If you look for an opportunity and pray for it and seek it, I guarantee you, you will find it every single time. Finally, I believe that there may be some people here today who have never truly responded to the gospel. Maybe you've prayed a prayer. Maybe you've been to church. Maybe you're a good person. Maybe you're a religious person, but you've never actually turned from your sin and trusted and believed in Jesus Christ. Paul describes the response perfectly, what it involves. He says that you repent and you believe. You literally are facing one way, facing the things that you desire and the things that you care about and you do a complete 180 and now you're facing the other direction. You're going down a different path and that's what repentance is and it's belief in Jesus that he is who he says he is. The matter of Jesus coming back is not a matter of if, but a matter of when. God commands all people everywhere to repent. It's not a suggestion, it's a command because one day we will all stand before Jesus. And as the chapter ends, we really see the same things that we always see. Some people reject it. Some people aren't ready. Maybe they're like, I can live for myself now. I'll live for Jesus when I get older, when I'm 40, when I'm 50, when I have a family. Paul commands, God commands you to believe and repent Now, why would you wait? What would prevent you from giving your life to Jesus this morning? What would prevent you from responding this morning? It's the greatest gift that you could ever receive, and God is offering it to you freely. A new heart to become a new creation. All the past mistakes that you've made to be wiped away, white as snow, instead of your mistakes, God now sees his son's perfect life. And then finally, the response that we see from a few people is that they respond to the gospel their heart has changed, their life has changed, and they follow the mission that God has for us. We were all created to know God and make him known. And my prayer for you, Ridgeline Church, is that each and every one of you would strive to live out that mission for your life every single day, no matter where you go, no matter where you work, that's what God's calling you to do. Let's pray. Dear God, we thank you so much for this morning. God, we thank you for the fact that your word gives us clear instruction, that every single one of us is called to know you and to make you known. God, we thank you that your word is clear. It gives us even the ways that we can know you. We thank you that you're loving, that you desire to be in a relationship with us. God, we thank you that we can have eternal life with you. God, I pray that we would realize the urgency of the gospel message, that one day you will come back. One day we will stand before you. And God, I pray that if there's anyone here who has never trusted and believed in you and turned from their sin by faith in Jesus Christ, I pray that they would do that this morning. They would call Pastor Ryan. They would call Pastor Tyler. They would reach out to someone and talk about how they can know you because you're willing and ready to save. I pray that For others of us who have already believed and trusted in you, that you would give us a fresh sense of urgency to live out the gospel message, to live on mission, to share the truth of who you are with our friends, with our family, with our neighbors. God, finally, I pray that for all the people that are watching this this morning, we would examine our own hearts. We would look for the idols in our own hearts, in our own lives, the things that no one knows about, the things that we've tucked down deep inside of us whatever it is, I pray that we would realize that it's preventing us from pointing people to you. Pray that we would remove those things. God, I pray that our hearts would be fully focused on you and you alone. Thank you so much for loving us. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.